Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And thus far the reading of God's Word, and all God's people said, Amen. Today we continue our examination of our church foundations. That is, those doctrines and practices that have enabled us to be established and that will enable us to endure. Sometimes when a building has been standing for a while, it starts to show signs of stress, of wear and tear. And it's not uncommon for foundation problems to manifest themselves, which will then call for examination, repair, and shoring up. This is really what Jesus was addressing when he spoke to the seven churches in the book of Revelation as he sends a message to the pastors of those churches And in most cases, he praised them for something, but then he also warned them. And so a good example of what I'm talking about is in what he had to say, what Jesus had to say to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have preserved and have patient, uh, persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So he praises them for many things that they're doing well. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so there is this solemn warning that Jesus gives. No matter how good you have been in the past, it's essential that you continue in the future. And if you've slipped, if you've drifted, if you've fallen away, then he's calling us back to, to turn around, to repent, to come back and do those things that you had at the first And so he both commends them and warns them. Well, today's topic is worship, specifically public and corporate worship. It's here each Sunday where we begin each new week. And remember, it's not the weekend, it's the week beginning. Today is the first day of the week. In this, we're acknowledging that we are the people of God that He is our God, and that we are dependent upon Him for salvation. It's a great place to start a new week. It's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. In public worship, we formally practice together for life. So we we come apart, we come together, and we practice in worship so that we can go out the doors and do these very same things at our house every day of the week. We prepare for the week to come by coming before God, by praying and singing and hearing God's Word and 
confessing our sins, remembering his forgiveness, receiving instruction, giving, confessing our faith and communing with God and with one another, renewing covenant with the Lord, and being sent forth into the world to do these things over and over again at our house and in our daily individual lives. So as we've gathered here today, there's a lot going on, if we'll pay attention. Worship isn't a place for mere spectators, but rather for the people of God to participate in serving, in serving Him and in proclaiming His worth. It is, according to our text, our reasonable service. John Calvin says the first foundation of righteousness is the worship of God. So there's no more important topic for the Christian church to study than the topic of worship. In fact, God created us to worship Him, and so it's at the very heart of our being. We were created in His image, an image that was intended to reflect His glory. And this is why the whole creation was brought into existence, to reflect divine glory. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This bears witness to the fact that God created us to worship Him, to declare His worth and glory. I like this definition of worship. Years ago, I wrote it in my Bible. I don't remember who I heard it from, uh, but I like it. It just simply says, Worship is that conscious, wholehearted activity of ascribing honor and praise to the living and true God for who He is and what He has done. Worship is that conscious, wholehearted activity of ascribing honor and praise to the living and true God for who He is and what He has done. N.T. Wright commented that when we begin to glimpse the, re- the reality of God, got that when we begin to glimpse just begin to see the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship Him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who He is and what He's done. So God made us for worship. We depend on it, and God is pleased when it's offered up with sincere hearts. Now, it's important for us to realize that God himself has also given us instructions as to how he desires to be worshipped. We're not left to worship him in our own way. We don't get to just make it up as so many people seem to think. I'm sure, given where I live, out in Woden, uh, down 226, there are many uh, vehicles headed out early this morning with a boat behind the vehicle headed down to Sam Rayburn to worship. Out in nature, we're close to God, right? In fact, it's got to be better than church. Now, for example, while we're called to worship Him privately and individually, He, God, also requires us to do so in communion with other believers. The church can be a very inconvenient place. And it certainly requires self-sacrifice. You've got to get out of bed. You've got to get dressed. You've got to go. You've got to be with those people. 
As members of the body of Christ, though, we live and function in the community of God's people, and we are called by Him to offer not only ourselves privately and individually, but also corporately and privately. We're members of one another. We're attached, sharing a common life and united in a common worship. And in the context of public corporate worship, it turns out that I discover that I'm not all important. It's not all about me. But I become part of something that turns out is bigger than me. We should be thankful for the countless numbers of Christian churches throughout history, throughout the world, and even in our own community, who week after week offer up faithful worship to God. We are blessed to count ourselves as part of a host of worshipers. While differences exist between churches, and we all have much to learn from one another, we continue to strive by the grace of God to mature in our call to worship Him. Without the regular assembly of worshipers, this church, in fact no church, would exist. The Bible tells us that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And one of the ways the truth is preserved and propagated is by our regular gathering to worship, to sit under His Word, to sing His Word, to pray, and all the other elements of worship that we participate in. Hebrews 10, 23-25, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. If we were all just out there on our own, would you waver? I would. Without you, without the church, I'm wobbly. I'm, I'm wobbly with you, okay? But I'm really wobbly without you. And it wouldn't take me very long out there by myself to drift away. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us... Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I need your exhortation. We need each other's encouragement, help, comfort. All the things that come by us being together, just knowing that someone else is struggling the way I'm struggling, falling short the way I'm falling short, in need of help the way I'm in need of help. That's encouraging all by itself. Little by little, week by week, year after year, the weekly corporate worship does its mystical work in us as the liturgy is ingrained in us, and we are shaped and formed into the likeness of Christ. And just a word about the liturgy. Every church has a liturgy, and no church has a perfect liturgy. We're always looking to grow, but the habit of coming together, of singing and praying and sitting under the Word and taking communion and the other elements of worship, whatever order they're in, are there some better than others? I would argue so. That's not my point. It's not to say they're all equal. It is to say that when Christians gather and the fundamental aspects and elements of worship are present, God is at work. 
and important things are happening. Therefore, there is nothing that you do every week that's more important than worship. Did you hear that? I know most of you have heard it many times from my mouth. So I'm going to say it again. There is therefore nothing you do every week that is more important than worship. In our family, we made the decision one time to go to worship every Lord's Day. And you say, well, you're the pastor. (laughs) You got to, right? Well, we made that decision before I was the pastor. We were married for 10 years or so before I was the pastor. I trust that you've made that same decision. We are worshiping people. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. We come out from the world and gather together with God's people around the family table on the first day of every week for our whole lives. It's here that we remember, as we've already said, who God is and what He's done for us. We remember who we are and why we're here. And again, I know I've said that already, but I don't want you to forget it. And from here, we are sent out to live and to love. Now, there's a glorious passage of Scripture found in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. You're familiar with it, but I want to read it again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King." the Lord of hosts. So it turns out that worship is the constant activity of heaven and our worship is to be a part of and an extension of that heavenly worship. Our worship, like our marriages, for example, are to be a reflection of the heavenly reality. Again, N.T. Wright, worship is the glad shout of praise that arises to God the Creator and God the Rescuer from the creation that recognizes its Maker. The creation that acknowledges the triumph of Jesus the Lamb. That is the worship that is going on in heaven, in God's dimension, all the time. The question we ought to be asking is, how might we best join in? The ascended Christ himself performs worship to the glory of the Father in the heavenly sanctuary. We read in Hebrews, two passages here, Hebrews 7:23. Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So in the Old Testament, many priests, they'd live, they'd be born, they'd, they'd serve as priests, they'd die, then we'd have more priests. 
But he, that is Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the ongoing work of Jesus. And again in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is engaged in this work continually. And, of course, God commands us to worship him. He not only created us to worship him, he commands us to do so. Just think about it. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with this. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus tells us that you're that the greatest commandment is that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, our deepest love and devotion is to be directed toward God and not toward ourselves. John Calvin said the first commandment means that we are with true, zealous godliness to contemplate, fear, and worship His majesty, to participate in His blessings, to seek His help at all times, to recognize and by praises to celebrate the greatness of his works as the only goal of all the activities of this life. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God created us to reflect his image, and therefore we're not to use images or idols for our worship since God is not represented by the art and imagination of men. We are the images of God. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment teaches us, again, that our worship is not to be vain or empty, but that it is to be honest And sincere. As Jesus put it, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The fourth commandment tells us to remember, to not forget to worship God on the Sabbath day. This is a call for the corporate worship of the covenant community of God's people who sanctify or set apart, make special one day in seven for the public worship of God. Oh, I think we'll stay home this morning. That's forgetting God. It says there's something more important than Him. 
What is it? Whatever that thing is that is more important, that has become your God. The religious commitment of the Old Testament saint was evident in his desire to give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The believer isn't reluctant, but rather eager to worship God. Especially in the midst of the assembled people. David the psalmist wrote, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Psalm 22, 22. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. David's inspired testimony shows that his desire for congregational worship is actually the normal thing for God's people. Just a few. Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. Psalm 107. Let them exalt Him also in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the company of the elders. In Psalm 149.1, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song and His praises in the assembly of the saints. And remember, saints are just believers. God's new covenant people looked at their practice of worship in this light from the Old Testament. For instance, we read in Hebrews 13, Therefore by Christ let us continually offer the sacrifices of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Let us do this. Now Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we began today, uses the phrase that as we become living sacrifices, that this is our reasonable service where the Greek word for service is the common word that is translated worship. This is your reasonable worship. The passage speaks of offering sacrifice to God. And remember, sacrifice is an expression of love. Indeed, instead of a dead animal being tossed on the fire as a substitute, we are living sacrifices which are given to God. In this sense, worship is the expression of a transformed life, a life which stands apart from worldliness and makes activity, every activity, a form of praising God. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. A biblical reformed attitude toward worship does not allow for a sacred, secular distinction in life. All of life is sacred. We don't just go to church or do the liturgy. We are the church and we live the liturgy. And when we leave here, we are still worshiping God. Everything we do in life is to be an act of worship, whether it's cooking dinner, 
weeding the garden, dressing for school, working for an employer, chatting with friends. If you study the solemn and sacred work of the Old Testament priest at sacrifice, you begin to get an idea of the monotonous, or excuse me, not monotonous, momentous importance. I'm sure it was monotonous at times, just doing the same thing over and over. But it was also of momentous importance, of the importance of worship to the New Testament Christian who is looking upon this, upon, who is looked upon as part of the priesthood, offering up the sacrifices of praise, the praise of God continually. That's our priestly work. This continual activity of worship is presented in the New Testament as both corporate, that is, we do it together, and we do it individually. This is a specific duty and privilege of the Christian life. Remember from 1 Corinthians 14 that the assembling is for the specific purpose of worshiping God. When we miss attending the church worship service or don't participate in its activities, we are not living up to the scriptural command for us to stand together in worship. That with one accord, you may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, it is expected that believers will regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. On a much more minor scale, how would you like it, imagine, if you had a special birthday party and you sent out... 20 invitations, and half showed up. How special is this? How important is this? How important is God? Now, again, N.T. Wright, true worship doesn't put on a show or make a fuss. True worship isn't forced, isn't half-hearted, doesn't keep looking at its watch, doesn't worry what the person in the next pew is doing. A godly attitude toward worship goes beyond making all of life a form of worship or service to God. A God let me say that again. A godly attitude toward worship goes beyond making all of life a form of worship or service to God. It also recognizes the biblical call to corporate praise and exhortation, something which is distinct from any ordinary garden variety of gathering of believers. In the New Testament, those assemblies which constitute the corporate worship of God were understood as something clearly distinct from informal household fellowship and eating, even though the worship, the worship assembly may have been in an actual home. In other words, our formal Gathering on the Lord's Day assembly is something special. Paul distinguishes between the Lord's Supper at the assembly and ordinary meals at one's house. And so bring, uh, being in the church at worship is thus something more than any normal gathering with other believers, even if at the gathering we engage in eating or singing or prayer. Now, it's true that you, let me say this, this is important. We live in an age, again, of very strong individualism. It is true that you must have Jesus in your heart. 
But you must have more than that. You must have Jesus in your heart and then also be with the body of Christ, joined with a bunch of other people who have Jesus in their hearts. It is the height of arrogance to presume that you don't need other people. God says you do. The church was his idea. And Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. C.S. Lewis observed that to love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Stephen Charnock wrote a famous two-volume set on called the, on the Existence and Attributes of God. And he says, without the heart, it's not worship. It's a stage play. You ever been to those kinds of worship services where everybody knew the roles and the parts, but it was just d- dusty, just dead. Everybody knew their lines. Jesus taught us that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth with sincerity faithfulness, and in the power of God's gracious Spirit. Our worship should reflect the very character of God. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit. Jesus said He was the way, the truth, and the life. It is to be, if it's to be godly, then our worship should be with God, that is, recognizing His presence, of God, that is, it's provoked by Him, and unto God, that is, offering praise to Him. Then we will leave the assembled time of worship, and our reasonable service will continue. Just a couple of more things here, real quick. Our perspective is often distorted. We think of ourselves as the audience, while ignoring excuse me, with a preacher as the entertainer taking his cues from God. We might be tempted to rate his performance, ignoring our own performance. In reality, we are the participants. The preacher gives the cues, and God himself is the audience. He's listening to my sermons. And he is watching your heart. We think of God as somehow far away, watching over our service at a distance. But in fact, God is in the very midst of the worshiping congregation. Just as kind of a metaphor, think of it this way. He's sitting next to you right now. Not only is our perspective distorted, but our practice is often flawed. We don't prepare our hearts for worship. 
We often do more to prepare for school exams or work projects. We don't give worship our best efforts in our singing. Oh, everybody else is singing. I don't need to sing. That's for them. I'm not a very good singer. You know what? God doesn't care that he called you to sing. Well, I'm not very good at praying. He still called you to pray. Not very good at worshiping. He still called you to worship. Not a very good listener. Well, you know what? Just keep working at it. Just get better. That's what he's called us all to do. That's why we're here together, to help each other. This is our highest, holiest, and most important performance. We don't worship... um, We're not, excuse me, it's important that we not just fall into ruts and externalism, habits. I was thinking right before we came out today as the elders, we prayed, and one of my prayers for myself today was, Lord, I've done this so many times, and I'm thankful for the habit of that, but what's the downside? It's easy for a habit to become just rote, and I don't think about it. I just do it. We're easily bored, aren't we? Scripture makes it our moral obligation not to forsake the assembling of God's flock as the church for the specific purpose of corporate worship as defined by the Lord under the leading of the shepherds. If we profess to obey him in all things, let us not be lax or self-willed, especially in this important point. It is the highest privilege of the Christian to stand with fellow believers as God's redeemed people in his presence, and to render to him the praise, the adoration, and worship which are due his name. It is preparation for eternity. If our corporate worship is likened to the work of the priesthood at sacrifice, then our individual daily worship as Christ's people is likened to the sacrificial victim upon the altar. Worship is a matter of learning to live in the presence of God. This is to take place at all times, in all places, no matter what we're doing. I like this statement C.S. Lewis made. We only learn to behave ourselves in the presence of God. For the Christian, holiness of life and sincerity of worship have to go together. When those who worship God live immoral lives, then the glory of God is obscured. Is this what you look like, you know, however you look right now, is this what you look like on Tuesday with your friends? Is this the face of your marriage and family life? On the other hand, when we reflect the holiness of God and are in fact the image of God, then God is glorified and we show forth his praises who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be completely holy before you worship. If it did, none of us could worship. Holiness is the fruit of worship. And worship is the workshop where we are transformed into the image of God. Again, N.T. Wright noted that you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe and admiration and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. 
It's in coming together for worship that we become the church. It's here that we are united into one body by the Holy Spirit and made participants in the kingdom of God. As we all bow before him, we are leveled. It's in worship that we hear the good news of our salvation, that we are saved from our sins and transformed into the image of Christ. And when we're transformed into his image, we then reflect his glory. It's through the ministry of praise and prayer, the ministry of word and sacrament, that we are transformed to offer that spiritual worship which is acceptable to God. And one last statement here from N.T. Wright. Though we sing with the tongues of men and angels, if we are not truly worshiping the living God, we are not noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Though we organize the liturgy most beautifully, if it does not enable us to worship the living God, we are mere ballet dancers. Though we repave the floor and reface the stonework, though we balance our budgets and attract all the tourists, if we are not worshiping God, we are nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for worship. Thank you for calling us out to be worshipers, to bow down before you with gratitude, with humility, with thankfulness, to come before your presence with singing, to delight in you, and to do it with others that you have done all those things for as well, as we are a community of grace. We are your trophies. Help us, Lord, to not forget what we're called to do. Help us not forget who you are and what you've done. Help us not to forget why we're here as a church, as your people. Keep us faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.